it really is quite astonishing to witness how everyone in the scientific community is really banding together because we are finally viewing something as a human problem. Advances in lung cancer treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But living with lung cancer during the COVID-19 pandemic is an entirely new complication. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Well, we're learning more about the risks every day, figuring out how to work, get health care and groceries, and see family and friends face-to-face are particularly challenging in the COVID era. This special series of episodes in the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast is designed to help you navigate the new COVID world while living with lung cancer. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, families, friends, co-workers. But first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living with lung cancer, the researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments, and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. We've all been learning to live with the COVID-19 pandemic for the past few months, and it seems safe to say it's not going away anytime soon. That's the not-so-good news. But in this challenging time, there are glimmers of hope coming from the intense focus from much of the world's scientific community. That's so true. Let's start this episode with a fascinating conversation about how COVID is changing how healthcare is delivered to lung cancer patients and beyond. We get details from Dr. Martin Edelman, an oncologist with the Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia, and the chairman of LCFA's Scientific Advisory Board. So we are just now about six months, a little past six months into the global COVID pandemic. Can you talk about how you, your team, and other medical teams that you know of are delivering healthcare safely during COVID? Is this process, is it changing? Is it getting easier at this point? So at Fox Chase, we kind of saw this coming and a few weeks just before the kind of the chaotic beginning of this in the the middle of March, um, we had begun discussing ways of dealing with it. And we were impressed by the uh, kind of what I'd call the Italian model where hospitals had chosen partners and one would be COVID positive and one would be COVID negative. So at Fox Chase, we were fortunate in that we are actually physically immediately adjacent and actually physically connected to another hospital called Genes, who are both part of the Temple University Health System. And so we, there were high-level arrangements that were made that uh, uh, the patients would come through Genes and those that would be positive would stay there. And we would be COVID negative and we would also take some non-oncology patients uh, at uh, Fox Chase as necessary. Uh, Additionally, we sent a lot of our staff, if they were not uh, immediately required for face-to-face clinical services, uh, were able to work remotely. Uh, We stood up uh, remote uh, visiting telehealth uh, very rapidly, went from essentially zero visits to, I forget the number, but it was something like a thousand within a matter of a couple of weeks. Uh, with the using a variety of platforms. So, you know, things evolve very rapidly and, you know, during that time, but 
we were able to actually continue uh, all of our cancer care. So we uh, actually administered 100% of our of chemotherapy uh, during that period of time. Um, we continue to see patients, um, uh, though we did some virtual consultations in medical oncology, we uh, still continue to do uh, mostly inpatient visits, uh, rather in-person visits. Um, so, uh, you know, we were able to kind of to continue this. It was obviously a very stressful time. So, you know, what's happened since the first couple of months, um, we, uh, I think things have become a little bit more relaxed as everybody has been masked and you know understands the importance of that. You know, it's kind of interesting that to this day I am unaware of even so much as a single case of COVID that has been transmitted within the institution. Actually, none of my uh, faculty, uh, and as best I know, none of the faculty uh, have contracted the disease. Which it's kind of interesting because it shows that basic precautions, masks hand washing, social distancing, are in fact sufficient to largely control the epidemic. And, and we have resumed all of our surgical services during this time. We're not quite up to where we were beforehand, but many of our surgical screening services, uh, radiation oncology also maintained virtually full services during this. So at least at Fox Chase, we have returned to almost a uh, pre-COVID level of operations. Uh, on the research front, uh, we never shut down our research program. We did um, you know, send uh, all of those in their office, those that involved with regulatory data management, et cetera, uh, to work remotely. Uh, we continue to accrue. Accruals fell off uh, pretty sharply for the March, April, May period, but resumed very rapidly. Uh, and we're back and, and uh, accruing at our prior rate currently. So it's been a very uh, interesting time. Um, what else have we done? Uh, we used to allow uh, patients to have visitors um, uh, during their infusions. Uh, that we completely eliminated. We've maintained that because that's an area where uh, folks are next to each other for prolonged periods of time and, and obviously uh, would be risky. Uh, we spread out the infusion areas. Um, we now do allow a patient to have, uh, with prior approval, uh, one person with them uh, in the clinic, uh, uh, though that uh, we're still working out some of the uh, distancing issues there. Um, we're still quite restricted on who can come and visit uh, the inpatient um, uh, population. So it's not back to normal from that standpoint, but uh, many of our services are back to normal at this point. That sounds like an incredible flurry of activity for six months. I mean, I'm so relieved to hear that you haven't had cases, um, you know, spread inside the with the staff or the faculty. And but but my goodness, are you exhausted? You know, it was extremely stressful. Uh, you know, again, I think this was shared by everybody. You know, the sun lockdowns, inability to travel and see family. Um, you know, the uncertainty uh, of what was going to happen, I think, particularly in that first eight weeks or so was tremendous. And now, you know, I, I think everybody feels the same. It's just kind of, you know, you were just, it's become the new normal, you know, I mean, who would have thought that you'd go to the grocery store and everybody would wear a mask? I mean, it's what it is. 
So you co-wrote an article in the Annals of Internal Medicine called War on Two Fronts, Cancer Care in the Time of COVID. And I've done some additional research on um, the rates of participation in, in clinical trials dropping during COVID. And you talk about in this article, um, balancing a delay in cancer diagnosis um, or treatment against potential COVID-19 exposure um, and you know, mitigating the risks of a dis disruption in diagnosis or care. Now this article was written in late March when everything was so new and everything was totally up in the air. What, um, what new information, what do you know now about balancing the risks of diagnosis and care of lung cancer right now um, during the COVID pandemic? So that article was, was uh, the primary author was Alex Kudakov, a urologic surgeon here at Fox Chase, and uh, with the assistance of a number of us. And I think that the issues that we were addressing is that we both have to pay attention to COVID and we need to, at the same time, we, we can't neglect the fact that uh, cancer patients, particularly those with advanced cancer, still need uh, treatment uh, and, and diagnosis and treatment. So, uh, and, and some of the problems with the shutdown um, are, are being seen and that there's been a drop in the number of cancer diagnoses. Well, it isn't because we suddenly came up with magical preventative uh, treatments uh, or approach to cancer, but rather that there's been a lot of delay in diagnosis. There have been fewer colonoscopies, fewer screening x-rays, fewer mammography, mammograms, et cetera. And all of this means that we're delaying the diagnosis of these patients and they're likely to appear sicker and with more advanced stages. And that's the problem that occurs with that. Uh, and there's been clear evidence that this has actually happened. Um, similarly with a lot of other things, you know, decreased numbers of visits to emergency rooms. You know, some of that was good because there, people were not on the roads, there was less trauma, okay? But on the other hand, there were those people who were staying home when they had chest pain. And so we probably have delays in diagnosis of a lot of other diseases, you know, cardiac disease. I don't think this is exclusive to cancer. I think the difference with cancer is that there were that the screening, you know, which we, you know, uh, approaches which we know result in earlier diagnosis were, were pushed back and continue to be pushed back. Uh, so that those were our concerns. We have to continue our efforts in screening, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer, while at the same time uh, understanding that we're dealing with this pandemic, minimizing exposure of both the patients and staff, you know, to the disease. And again, I think we've evolved uh, pretty significantly on that and now are able to deal with it. So for example, at Fox Chase, all the patients coming in for surgery are screened or those that are getting you know, procedures which could potentially expose staff to COVID-19. Because if one looks at you know, who was it who got severe disease of the younger people, physicians, those that got a heavy dose of COVID-19. So if you're doing uh, uh, you know, bronchoscopy, you better, you know, you know, it's good to both screen the patient as well as, you know, protect the staff. And you, um, you mentioned it just a minute ago, or you alluded to it, that lung cancer falls in the, um, the category of needing immediate treatment and the concern about people um, not getting diagnosed earlier and therefore showing up with uh, more advanced stages of lung cancer. 
Um, what is so critical about making sure that people with lung cancer are diagnosed and then start treatment pretty, pretty quickly? Well, we know that lung cancer screening saves lives. I mean, we've now had uh, multiple, tri multiple trials done in the United States, Europe, uh, Japan that have looked at uh, screening CTs. We know that that uh, results in diagnosis at lower stage. Uh, and that they're you know, more curable disease. And most critically, we know that the overall that uh, uh, you know, all-cause mortality falls in that situation. So as we delay that, uh, obviously that's gonna be impacted. Um, as I said before, you know, the other thing that's happened is people have been more reluctant to come in with symptoms that they may have of cough or hemoptysis, you know, hope that it just goes away. And even patients with advanced disease, you know, our treatments have improved dramatically in the last few years. While still far from perfect, you know, the fact is, is that if we get a patient when they're slightly symptomatic, even with advanced disease, we have an increased uh, armamentarium with uh, immunotherapies, targeted therapies, et cetera, uh, that result in longer and better life. Uh, so that needs immediate treatment because if they don't, if a patient is not treated in an expeditious fashion, uh, then they will have a frequently a very rapid decline and one can lose that opportunity, lose that window of opportunity uh, for therapy. You know, one, um, and you mentioned this, or it's mentioned in the article that a, a unique aspect of cancer care is clinical trials. Um, they are, you know, incredibly important and they become, um, or they have components of the standard of care for many uh, lung cancer patients. So maybe you can talk about briefly why um, it's so important for people who have been diagnosed with lung cancer to consider a clinical trial, even if they're concerned about um, COVID. And I think you've answered a lot of the questions about COVID, but if someone has got that lung cancer diagnosis and they're in this you know, place of shock and fear and you know, concern and what do I do, um, you know, how, how would you reassure them that, that perhaps um, participating in a clinical trial right now really is a, a good idea for them? So, you know, in, in oncology and much of oncology, the, the standard of care is a clinical trial. Uh, there are very few diseases where patients, uh, are, you know, are cured of advanced cancer and certainly in advanced lung cancer, that remains uh, an exception. The fact that there's actually even a small percentage of patients with advanced disease who seem to become long-term survivors is a result of recent clinical trials. So, you know, but unfortunately most patients will still succumb to their disease. So for the vast majority of patients with lung cancer, uh, there still is, you know, clearly a long way for us to go before, you know, we have good uh, reliable standard of care approaches. You know, standard of care was certainly the default offering, but like I said, you know, the vast majority of patients will succumb to their disease. So what trials offer is the potential for, you know, improved outcomes. Most of the trials that are available now today build upon that standard of care. They're either pairing uh, a new regimen to standard of care or uh, their standard of care plus something else. What we've seen in the last uh, you know, 20 years is first the advent of, of targeted agents, which for about 15% of the population was dramatically better, less toxic, uh, more effective than uh, 
uh, standard chemotherapy. Unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of those patients will progress at a certain point. So there's a need uh, to you know, uh, obtain better drugs, better combinations, even in that group. Uh, for the average patient, you know, the typical patient who uh, has a, doesn't, doesn't have a driver mutation is not a good candidate for uh, targeted therapies as they currently exist. Uh, immunotherapy has been strikingly effective for some patients. Again, there's a small percentage that appear to get durable benefit, but that percentage is probably less than 5% uh, for all comers. Um, so, you know, we, we clearly continue to need new therapies. The thing that's important, and this is a logistical issue uh, uh, that sometimes goes unappreciated, is it takes many years to get a study up and going. You know, even the most straightforward trial can take a, a considerable period of time to get launched. It represents an enormous effort in terms of time, finances, and energy to get a study up and going. If it does not complete, then we never get that answer, you know, one way or the other. And so, uh, you know, nobody, nobody benefits. Patients don't benefit because they're not getting a superior approach or because it leaves open questions uh, that we still can't answer. And then that becomes, you know, whenever you have a data-free zone, you know, people do things without clear evidence of benefit and frequently of harm. You know, we've seen this with COVID. COVID, COVID I think, has been probably the, the fastest education of you know, people about the importance of clinical trials and clinical research. They're seeing it happen in you know, more than real time. It's like speed it up time right now. I think it's very critical that everybody understand there is no such thing as a non-toxic drug. Every drug has its side effects. And we need to refine our trials in, in lung cancer and everything else and find the right population that may benefit because, uh, and, and only that can be, that can only be accomplished through trials. It will never be accomplished through anecdotes. I think that's such an interesting point of view that we're all getting this firsthand uh, education due to COVID in terms of what, what a clinical trial is and how, you know, how you assess safety of a trial or a drug or a you know, treatment. The, the important aspect is also to understand what really what science is. You have your hypothesis, you test it. It may be true, it may not be. I mean, particularly in lung cancer, all of us have had our favorite you know, drug or hypothesis or pathway over the years and turned out that it didn't work or maybe it worked in one group and not in another. And then you change and then you say, okay, these are the results that I had. Let's go on to the next thing. Or if it didn't work, why didn't it work? I've heard a couple of different doctors, um, oncologists, researchers talk about potentially some, some upside, which it's hard to you know, think about an upside from COVID, but so many people paying attention to the function of the lung and how COVID you know, um, attacks the lung and um, hoping that this intense focus on the study of the lung and what's happening may shed light on you know, better treatments or, or potential, I guess, treatments for, for lung cancer patients. Do you share that optimism? Anything that results in increase in knowledge in, you know, basic science, immunology, et cetera, is, you know, may, may have, you know, uh, some benefits elsewhere. You know, one part of medicine never operates in isolation from another. Um, so I, I don't think that it's, you know, I, I think it's just going to be that the more we look at different things, um, 
the more we're likely to find out. I mean, knowledge begets knowledge. I love that description. Knowledge begets knowledge. It's wonderful to get a deeper understanding of how healthcare providers across the country are delivering care as safely as possible during the COVID pandemic. Up next, we'll hear why one lung cancer researcher is hopeful for breakthroughs, not despite, but because of the COVID pandemic. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast? Consider making a donation to help LCFA produce this resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. Just text LCF America to 41444 to join in this important fight. With all the changes and challenges happening in healthcare during COVID, one lung cancer researcher, one of LCFA's young investigators, says she's seeing potentially hopeful news. That's right. Dr. Kelly Smith of Johns Hopkins explains that even though she had to pause her lung cancer research to convert her lab to COVID study, the similarities between COVID and lung cancer may lead to better treatments for lung cancer down the road. Can you explain briefly into the process of converting a lab like yours from studying lung cancer to studying COVID and what that process was like? What was the, um, you know, what were you told when, when uh, you had to make that switch? Yeah, that's a great question. This all happened very quickly and very abruptly. Uh, it was probably, I would say, within a week. Uh, we, we were notified to start preparing for, for slowing down research and uh, only having what we would call essential experiments ongoing in the lab. And then eventually it was, you know, completely shut down your, your research, uh, all within probably a week or, or 10 days. It was very quick. Um, my lab does focus on lung cancer immunology, but at the heart of it, I'm really an immunologist by trade, and I'm actually trained as an infectious disease immunologist. Um, that was what my PhD work was in. So it was only natural that during the time we were unable to do cancer research because of the coronavirus, uh, that we do what we can to help with the efforts doing research on coronavirus. Uh, there are there were some tricky things in, in converting the lab. Uh, it was more of a logistical conversion rather than a physical conversion. You know, we really didn't do anything to, to change the lab around, but uh, COVID is, uh, or, or SARS-CoV-2 is an infectious disease, whereas cancer is not. So, uh, you know, there were some considerations there. Um, we had to be certified for uh, a higher level of safety. Um, we had to go through additional training and, and make sure we had all the safeguards. Hopkins has a really good um, biosafety committee that we had to work with uh, in order to, to start uh, doing coronavirus research. Um, and it all happened very, very quickly. Um, but that's kind of the nature of the beast that we're dealing with right now. And tell me about the similarities um, 
and I understand that there's not similarities between lung cancer and um, coronavirus, but the similarities in w- the study of lungs, um, you know, how what you might be able to learn about the function of the lungs as you are researching um, how to combat coronavirus that might be applicable down the line to lung cancer? That, that's The answer to that is twofold. So the first thing is that the uh, assay, the test that my lab developed called Manifest, was actually optimized in the viral setting. So it was, it was optimized using viral antigens um, to eventually test responses to cancer proteins. Um, And we've been using this assay for several years now to detect and monitor responses in patients receiving immunotherapy. Um, And that's mostly been in lung cancer patients. So the the logical step for us was to use this assay to test patients with coronavirus to, to see if we can detect and monitor their T cell responses and figure out if there's any correlation between T-cell responses and and clinical outcome, Um, or to find targets, um, you know, useful immune targets of of the virus. Um, So that's how we've been able to apply our tools, which which were traditionally meant for cancer, um, in the coronavirus setting. So the, the second part of that answer is, you know, is there any silver lining that can come out of this? And what we're finding is that by studying what is happening in the lungs of patients with coronavirus, where you have this massive inflammatory reaction to this virus, is we're able to better understand the basic biology of the lung during inflammation. And that happens very frequently in patients with cancer and in patients particularly who are receiving uh, immunotherapy. We know that a subset of patients will develop immune-related adverse events, which um, in lung cancer patients frequently is pneumonitis, which is uh, an inflammatory condition. So by studying um, the the biology of the lung under these conditions in coronavirus, I think we're going to really make great strides in not only um, understanding what's happening during adverse events of immunotherapy, but understanding just the general underpinnings of immunology in the lung. Well, you know, one consistent thing that I have seen in coverage of coronavirus is this idea that um, across the world, silos are coming down among um you know, healthcare frontline workers. So, you know, maybe the the ER docs treating it or the ICU docs and nurses treating coronavirus and then researchers in the lab and then different um, hospitals or different um, researchers working together. Is that something that you have found in your work is the idea that, you know, faced with this overwhelming threat that, that some of these barriers to collaboration are coming down? Absolutely. It it is very astonishing to see. Uh, As a researcher, there are people every hour practically posting their data on the internet, which is not something that you see with any other uh, disease or any other, you know, setting. Um, It it really is quite um, astonishing to, to witness how everyone in the scientific community is really 
banding together because we are finally viewing uh, something as a human problem and and not just um, you know this is this is my research this is your research um, you, it's really become this collaborative thing where as soon as people make a discovery in the lab they share it on Twitter or they share it on a preprint server or they email it out to their colleagues and and anyone they know that's that's researching it and it, it's really um, heartwarming to see the community kind of um, step up and, and rise to the occasion with us. That's a really, really cool perception that you have and, and experience. And I'm so grateful because, you know, like you say, there's a, a, unfortunately a slowdown in lung cancer research, but, you know, maybe coming out of this, there might be, you know, a greater understanding of the function of the lung and how uh, to treat lung cancer. And that's just, I, that's a really exciting idea to come out of this, which, you know, is a potential bright spot in, in a fairly um, frustrating time. Absolutely. And uh, it, it's unfortunate that we had to stop um, our, our lung cancer research for a few months, but we have come out of it with this uh, fire to make up for lost time and uh, really move forward um, with a tenacity uh, to, to, to make up for it. And I think that ultimately the, the work is complementary. You know, the work that we're doing with coronavirus is, is complementary to lung cancer research. And um, I, I really think we're going to learn a lot. Kelly Smith has a knack for explaining complicated things so clearly. It's encouraging to think that there may be positive advances that come out of this very challenging time. Thank you to Dr. Kelly Smith of Johns Hopkins and Dr. Martin Edelman of Fox Chase Cancer Center for joining us today on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. Join us again next time. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. So visit us online at lcfamerica.org where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Music